0: Black Bottom Saints with Alice Randall. I'm your host, Alice Randall. Each episode of this podcast will explore the life of a particular saint in the novel Black Bottom Saints, the rich history of Detroit's Black Bottom neighborhood, what the Detroit past has to tell us about the global future, and end with a cocktail recipe, or a mocktail recipe in this case. This podcast is for people who have and have not read Black Bottom Saints. Each episode will be talking about the play between history and fiction, and how one informs the other. I hope a stop here is a little like meeting up with a talkative stranger in the lobby of Detroit's fabled Gotham Hotel. This week, I want to introduce you to Martin Luther King as viewed through the lens of Black Bottom. On June 23, 1963, Martin Luther King gave his Walk to Freedom speech before a predominantly Black Detroit audience of 125,000 men, women and children. At the time, it was considered the largest civil rights gathering ever held in America. It was addressing this crowd of Detroit breadwinners and their families that King introduced the language that would develop into the I have a dream speech, as well as the momentum for the March on Washington, which would be orchestrated by King's colleague and strategist Bayard Rustin. In 1964, King received the Nobel Peace Prize. As part of the official celebration in Stockholm, Ziggy's protege Clifford Fears performed a solo dance based on the Paul Lawrence Dunbar poem, Little Brown Baby. Martin Luther King was awarded the Peace Prize for his nonviolent resistance to structural racism. He was 35 in Stockholm and the youngest person to ever receive the Nobel Prize. King began his acceptance speech with the words, I accept the Nobel Prize for Peace at a moment when 22 million Negroes of the United States of America are engaged in a creative battle to end the long night of racial injustice. Here with me today to discuss the Martin Luther King chapter in Black Bottom Saints is Steve Earle, a songwriter, fiction writer, playwright, and activist. Welcome, Steve. How are you? I am good, and I hope you are, too. Um, I'm going to jump right in here. King spoke of 22 million Black Americans being engaged in a, quote, unquote, creative battle to end the long night of racial injustice. Creative battle is an interesting and overlooked phrase that I think resonates loud in the current moment. Can you talk about some of the ways that you have been engaged in a creative battle to end the long nights of injustice because you have been in a lot of those battles
1: um well I mean I, people see me as a political songwriter I guess but I'm really not I write more songs about girls than I do anything else but I I don't I just grew up when I grew up and I'm a post Bob Dylan songwriter and you know as quickly as Bob tried to distance himself from that kind of a song because he didn't want to get stuck there I I totally understand that and it's uh but it's you know, it. I. I'm just a. I'm a product of the era I grew up in, which is the era of, you know, of Martin Luther King and 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 um, you know, also Pete Seeger and 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 post Woody Guthrie and and um. It's just you know the civil rights movement and and what I do for a living. We're we're kind of side by side. Joan Baez was there in Washington that day, and we've talked about that a lot. And I. I you know, she was standing just a few feet from Dr. King, and um, it's always been, it's just topics and politics, if you want to call it that, or have always been just part of what I do. It's part of the world that I look at and, and I write about. Um, every once in a while, you have to, there's a little pushing and shoving involved with the commercial music business, which is where the way music is largely funded and, and i've never been one to complain about that i was always willing to do the fight it was part of the the fun for me i don't you know um i come from the 80s i come from that's when i finally got a record deal and yeah you know a, a different music business whoever died with the highest unrecouped figure wins and i was perfectly okay with taking corporate money to do what i do and i sort of felt it like it was a little victory every time i got to make a record but it's you know all these things are they're all tied together for me. And, and um, you know, I fight when I have to fight and, and uh, it, it's just sort of part of the job.
0: Well, you certainly have uh, actually advanced the cause of abolition of the death penalty. You've done important work on that. And I was also thinking in with the, your fiction writing and your playwriting that you have addressed uh, many issues related to labor unionisms, uh, the exploitation in coal mines that you have approached this creative battle in a lot of ways and so um you do
1: you Roe versus Wade in my novel I mean so it's not um it's it's one of those deals and see this is a tough one when you start talking about um you know we're living in this era where um things have changed you know on almost every level and and um you know, Dr. King's starting to get looked at through that lens, and which is, I I think of a lot of what we're talking about here yep. today.
0: we're moving up to we're right moving up there. But uh, so let's just as we move towards that question, where were you? Just position yourself for a moment when Dr. King was shot. Um, Texas, you know, um, and I heard about it um,
1: uh, on television,
0: okay.
1: and 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 my connection to it directly was my mother is from Nashville originally and texas south texas was a completely different thing racially it is a it's a, a different environment it's not a southern environment there were i know i knew two black people growing up uh, that weren't in the military there were two black people in my high school period and it was there was lots of you know that was okay they had plenty of mexicans to pick on so you know the the, the local white people were perfectly happy but it uh it was just uh, Northeast Texas where my father's from is more of a deep South culture. And most of the black folks I knew were, were people that I, I knew from visiting there. But my mother was born in Tennessee and moved to Texas in high school. My, grand, my great grandmother who raised her lived in Nashville and lived between at that time, right between um, Centennial Park and you know, the Fisk and Meharry campuses. And that part of Nashville got torn up that night. So my long distance wasn't that easy in those days. And I remember my mother being in kind of a panic, trying to get a hold of her grandmother that night.
0: That's an intimate connection to that night of the death. People listening to this podcast are aware and respectful of the profound contributions to American life Dr. King made and his profound sacrifice. He has become in some circles revered almost as a Jesus figure, but one of my ambitions with the Martin Luther King chapter was to see King through Ziggy's eyes as a flawed and yet human, flawed human, yet worthy of respect and remaining part of the conversation, part of the community though imperfect. Ziggy fears specifically that King is something of a snob. He fears King is so focused on how the Ofe's treat us and not enough on how we are treating ourselves. And he is concerned with King sanctioning sexual orientation-based discrimination within the movement. Other concerns have even risen since Ziggy's time of information problematizing King in terms of perhaps sexual harassment. Some of these things are not proven. But if King were alive today, it's possible he would be canceled. Can we talk about how we balance accountability in public figures with compassion or with continuing engagement with the best of their ideals while dealing with how far short they may fall of them and the realities of their life?
1: Um, Only you would drag a a white male into this discussion because it's probably um, harder for for people like me, and I know that sounds like whining, but it's it's not really. I'm I'm aware of it, and I'm okay with it. But um, you know, things have changed, and the way um, the way we deal with the way white males deal with women, the way white people in general deal with race, all those things have been challenged, and it all started happening at once. And it's about time. So, uh, but you know, there's there's lots of examples of where. Uh, I find myself like um, Woody Allen. I still watch Woody Allen movies. Um, I think he did it. You know, I believe her. Uh, Some people don't. Some really dear friends of mine don't. And I live in New York for 17 years now. And New Yorkers have this attachment to Woody Allen. It's just something they don't want to let go. So I, but I, I can still watch the films. I've proven that to, my, to myself. Uh, Manhattan came on and I had to watch it,
0: which is probably the most problematic
1: of those films when it comes to that subject. Um, well,
0: that's why I wanted you on this this uh, podcast because this is not a black and white issue. And it's interesting. For example, I do not watch Woody Allen movies anymore. Right. I yeah. believe I, I her is. and that, and I don't, but I let, read some W.H. Auden poetry. So these are very, and I, it's. I think it's important to raise the question because some people need to be, and it'll be different people for each of us, called out and absolutely called out. I think, it's okay. I think it. it's okay
1: to not watch Woody Allen movies if you're not comfortable with watching them. I, I Like I said, I believe that, and I probably shouldn't even say this, but I believe that he did it. And I believe it because of experience in my life and I can't get into the details. I knew someone who was a victim of, of sexual abuse very similar to this that did not talk about it and did not let anyone know until the person was grown and so i know that that it's possible and uh like firsthand and i don't um uh so it's so i had to ask myself that question and i'm not somebody that i guess i don't have um the attach—I don't think I have the New York attachment because uh, to Woody Allen that a lot of people do, and it's very sacred to New Yorkers. Like I, I like the New Yankee Stadium just fine, and I've been the Yankees fan all my life. But I didn't grow up there, so I was never attached to the old stadium. I, these things are like we get ingrained things ingrained in us that don't have anything to do with, with anything except for our own experience. But that's okay. You have to take other people's experience into account. You can't judge them for the way they deal with me personally. For the same reason that I still can watch a Woody Allen movie, I'm not particularly interested in any revelations about Dr. King personally. All I have to know about Dr. King is that he risked his life every minute of his public life. He did things that nobody else had ever been able to do before for whatever reason. The culture that he grew up in uh, I mean, and this is like I said. Here I am in that white guy in you know, a uh, tough position. It's possible the the culture that Dr. King grew up, which is African American culture in the United States, is possibly even more hostile to the the whole concept of sexual preference or sexual identity than white people are, and that's part of the culture. Uh, Although and, you know, we do challenge and part of the time.
0: We challenge that in Black Bottom Saints that that was something that sort of came in. I love that you focused on his courage and how he risked his life every day. And one of the things I think is interesting is a lot of the recent allegations that come in about Dr. King, I actually don't believe. And think, for example, if he was assaulting someone, the FBI was taking notes of it, they would have gone in immediately and interceded and confronted that makes him. Perfect sense to me. And taken him down on that case. Yeah. So I think that didn't happen. I know you are on the road. You are with Emmy Lou Harris. What do you got? What well, tell us a little bit about that tour you're on right now?
1: I'm on a bus full of women. It's great. Um there's um it's me, Emmy Lou Harris, Amy Helm. Tao, uh, who has a band called Tao and the Get Downs. And you're singing to bring attention to what problem? The Women's Refugee Commission, who who were the first people into those camps on the U.S. border at the time that we started these um, these concerts um, about six years ago. That was the issue we were most concerned with. Now, um, they were mainly concerned with trying to get stop the separating of families, and that did stop. And
0: you know, they, and first uh, of all, let's say that is a creative battle to end a long night of injustice. Right. right. But the, you now, are well, in the. doing right?
1: work in Afghanistan with women and girls. The, the Women's Refugee Commission has been doing work with displaced people and migrant people all over the world for years and years. And so, just like I mean, I used to do this for the landmine campaign for the. Come to the Concerts for a Landmine-Free World. We've we've been doing this for the last several years. It's it's just just trying to keep from going to hell. You know, it's one of those things I'm looking for something to do that besides uh, go out and make money.
0: One of the things I love about Martin Luther King is that he, and one way he was very different from his times, in addition to the extraordinary groundbreaking work in nonviolence, was he had close personal cross-gender friendships. And you do too. Uh, with Lou Harris, I am proud to say that you and I have been friends for almost 30 years, I think, yeah. and Mahalia Jackson and Ziggy were extraordinarily close friends. One of my favorite songs that Mahalia Jackson sings, I think could be a theme song for you. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. And the well, walls I've came. That, I ripped that
1: song off several times. It's a it's a great source of material as well.
0: So tell us. Oh, I didn't even know. I wasn't setting you up to say that. Where, where where what songs do you echo or do you riff? Would you riff on that? I think um, when do you respond to her call on that? The last time
1: would have been a song called um, "Tell Moses" that's on the Colvin and Earl record that Sean and I wrote, and it's kind of it's mostly my song. Sean helped me finish it, but um, it it basically juxtaposes the. You know the um, the Exodus from Egypt against Selma in 1965 and Ferguson, Missouri, and, and verse after verse. I don't know if you've heard that song or not, but I get in you know, it, it uses lines like you know, um, you know, blowing his trumpet, the walls are coming down, and it's, uh, you know, and I actually say. Uh, it, it, the first line is "Drama down in Egypt, fair fit to fight." So it's it's based on those kind of spirituals like Joshua fit the battle. It's actually kind of a little skating on thin ice because it actually is in dialect um, to some degree. I, I'm gonna- I, I write, I write I in love- dialect anyway. I when I write songs down, I actually re- spell them the way I'm actually going to sing them, and I think that's important. Uh, rather than trying to correct English that I'm not going to, why, why put a G on the paper that I'm
0: not going to sing anyway? So that's just the way I write. Well, I am going to be listening to that song this afternoon, you know, that uh, Martin Luther King was actually assassinated during Seder uh, the year he, and the next year at the anniversary of his assassination, there was a beautiful Freedom Haggadah that came out in Washington, D.C. Uh, that set the entire Seder story in the civil rights battle and the civil rights battle into the Seder story. And I love that your song also speaks back to that moment. Um, I'd love to close by taking us back to post Ziggy Detroit. Tell us briefly about the first and last time you played Detroit City.
1: Uh, Let's see. Um, I was there, God, not the last tour, but the last tour before COVID shut us down. Where did we? Oh, I played um, uh, St. Andrews for the first time in a long time. I and which
0: album were you supporting in that?
1: Uh, it would have been it would have been the guy record. Um, so and it was the first time I, I, I just remember it because I I played downtown for the first time in a long time because we've been playing suburbs for a long time. Just as Detroit's always been problematic for venues. But um, actually, in this case, I think the casino, kind of, the casino's kind of helped downtown and and an entertainment district had sort of developed again and you know sanders is right by greek town that's the first place i ever had greek food was the first time that i played detroit and um when was that when was the first time you played detroit 1986 when guitar town came out and and i had this connection there that had i had friends in detroit for years and, and still have some Bob Gillespie, who was in Mitch Ryder's band for years, uh, used to come to my shows all the time, and George Karniak, some other folks, they're all kind of from that, you know, that that other side of music in Detroit, you know, the whole Mitch Ryder rock and roll world, and and I've, you know. Um, and you've got I've, me,
0: I'm a friend of yours from Detroit. You that's right, but you're kind of from everywhere,
1: too. You're from Detroit, and I think you've kind of, you were the first person that sort of, uh, that that opened me up to the idea that see, I, I moved around a lot but it was in one area and and you you know you're, you're like um um you were the hardest person for me to stereotype of anybody I ever met at the time that we met
0: well I love that well for we are giving a special spin on our ending drink tonight we have several the one from my father is also one without spirits it's called a pace yourself um in honor of your sobriety and other people you've supported moving in that direction we have a special libation for the feast day of martin luther king the steve Roll version it's called shining hour one sugar cube one half lime juiced one half lemon juiced ginger ale preferably detroit's own verner's ginger ale place sugar cube into cocktail shaker and muddle with juices add ice shake strain into a tall thin glass with more ice and top with the verners that is the shining hour steve earl version and if you want the ziggy bullock version when you add the jigger of old tom gin when you add the ice before you shake Next week, we'll be talking about the divine Della the ultimate Detroit diva. Until then, keep zagging with Ziggy. And always remember, joy is radical. I'm Alice Randall, and this is the Black Bottom Saints podcast. And today we have been thrilled to have Steve Earle, my old friend, here with us. Down in Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast was produced by Chelsea Crowell and Aaron McNally. The theme from Black Bottom Saints was written and recorded by Lewis York. Nashville Women Blues was recorded by Reese Palmer and written by Bessie Smith. The novel Black Bottom Saints is published by Amistad, HarperCollins, and is available at your favorite bookstore and on Audible. Find out more at alicerainville.com.